You're listening to season four of This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Creation Care Summit, a grassroots gathering of Nazarenes. You can join us in Flint, Michigan this October as we dream about what a creation care movement in the Church of the Nazarene could look like. There's more details over at creationcaresummit.eventbrite.com. Today on the podcast, we have Reverend Josiah Jones, the pastor of Shelton Washington Church of the Nazarene. He's also the author of The Millennial Pastor and a podcaster over at themillennialpastor.com. Thanks for all you do for young clergy, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Josiah Jones. Josiah is the pastor of Shelton, nope, Shelton, Washington. Shel- Did I get that right? Shelton, Shelton Church of the Nazarene. With a T, not Shelton. Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. That's right. In Shelton, Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Well, the first question I ask everyone is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I, I like to tell stories specifically in membership classes um, about the time my parents went to this community church and then the community church imploded. And then mm. they decided that maybe having a little bit of oversight was helpful and accountability. And the, they were they were of the mind that denominations were just legalistic and uh, they, they grew up Baptist. Um, so when I was born, they had left that world and they said it was very legalistic and um overbearing but essentially mm-hmm. they found this really cool community church they were a part of um and the church I, it's, it's gonna get like pg-13 for a second because this, <laughs> this really happened at a church so okay. I, I, this is it's kind of necessary for my story to answer this question gotcha um they had a young pastor they had young leaders they had a you know kind of like an elder board but the elders the oldest elders were probably in their mid-30s mm. so it was just a younger group of people sure um so I guess they were trying to figure out how to address um, sin. <laughs> and there was this younger woman who was, I don't know, I, I, I've heard the story a million times. No one has told me the exact ages or names or anything, but mm. she, she was in her 20s and she was doing something um, unbecoming of a Christian. I don't know if she was, I don't know. I don't know exactly what she was doing, but basically all the things they had done to that point to try to get her to stop sinning. And uh, <laughs> I don't it wasn't working and Mm. they resulted to the craziest thing I've ever heard happen in a community church. One of the elders grabbed her and bent her over his lap and she, she got a spanking. Uh, what? Yes. No joke. So I, I obviously the church kind of collapsed and imploded because that's just, that's a little much. Uh Um, That's a little crazy. And so as a result, my parents decided to maybe try out denominational churches once again. Mm. Um, they're still connected with all those people. It's really interesting. Like some of their uh, closest lifelong friends are people that went to that church with them. And so they had meaningful ties and connections with the people. It was just some of the wonky leadership. And, and so, so much of that they saw as, you know, stemming from no accountability, no connection to a larger church uh, sure. denomination. So, yeah. so I don't know, by the time I was three or four, I want to say we started going to um, it's called Orangewood Church of the Nazarene in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. And so I, from my earliest memories, was going to a Nazarene church mm. and kind of didn't stop, really. So talk to me about how you got from there to being a pastor. Well, eventually we would leave um, the Valley of the Sun, as we call it. It is always hot and sunny there, even in the winter. Oh, um, wow. And my my dad found work in northern Arizona. He's a self-contracted or self-contracted self-employed contractor he owns his own company and he does a hardwood flooring so he's Mm. just kind of a blue collar worker and he was initially living in phoenix with with us but then spent the majority of his time driving to northern arizona about two hours up into the mountains Mm. to do all these homes up there and it kind of clicked in his mind after a number of issues where we lived involving violence and drive-bys and drug deals and stuff that maybe we should move but then the natural conclusion was to move where his work was. So we ended up in a, in a small town called Chino Valley, which is north of uh, the bigger city in the area called Prescott, Arizona. Mm-hmm. 
And once again, my parents were a little leery. They were not so sure about the whole denominational church. And uh, they, they kind of wavered for a little bit about which church they should go to. We tried out some different churches, but eventually we, we landed in the Prescott Church of the Nazarene. And so mm -hmm. from about 1992 till I graduated high school and went to college, I went to that church. And I was at that church a lot. Um, I, for whatever reason, it seems that people get the impression from me that I'm a PK, but I'm not. Um, my, my parents just kind of lived at church that my dad was a Sunday school teacher. My mom was in the choir. They ended up having dramas for Easter and Christmas. And so there's all these extra practices. I was in every children's thing and every junior high and high school thing you could ever imagine. So we were at church sometimes uh, during the periods of time where there's like a play or drama thing where I got voluntold to be in it because my parents were in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could be at church like five, six days a week and mm. <laughs> volunteering our time. I'm like I would rather be home playing video games parents. Um, but somewhere, somewhere in there, we got this youth pastor that was incredibly inform uh, formative in my life. You had a, a real, uh, got a, got a real hold of me in a, in a way that was, kind of new. I guess I sort of was just going through the rigmarole of church, but this guy um, definitely caught my attention when I was about, I, I want to say maybe an eighth grader, a freshman um, in high school, we got this new youth pastor and we had literally, since I had been there, so we're talking in a span of maybe eight to 10 years, gone through something like 12 youth pastors. It was ridiculous. Ooh. And so finally this guy stuck around and he actually got to know us and he mm. hung out with us. He came to our high schools and ate lunch with us. We were invited to his house. He took us on these crazy adventures. We went camping. I mean, just all sorts of cool stuff where suddenly it's like, oh, hey, there's something to church and I kind of like it. Um, and so with that, we went to all these other events. Um, we went to different conferences. We went to different, you know, youth church gathering things where y'all, y'all get to hear a good, good sermon that is geared towards teenagers and get y'all jazz and stuff. But one of the things we always regularly do would do on a yearly basis was go to camp. And mm -hmm. that was just, that was kind of the NAS standard. Um, but what was fun is that fun, but also kind of took away from it a little bit was that the actual campground for the entire state of Arizona was in my hometown. Oh, wow. So all these, all these uh, Nazarene kids would be coming from the Phoenix area from Southern Arizona, and they would be escaping the heat to come up to the mountains. And so it was this really cool, escape for them to where they could go away from regular life and have that, you know, what we would stereotypically call the mountaintop experience. And for me and for all of the kids in my youth group, it's, it was one of these, yeah, we go to this place all the time, but it's cool. Cause all you are here now. So we get to hang out. Yeah. And I remember one particular camp where I was actually maybe starting to question some of these, why am I doing this sort of what's this faith thing about, do I really buy this stuff? I must have been 14 or 15. And I was having some really significant conversations with my youth pastor. And, uh, you know, at, at the time when I didn't feel like talking to my parents. So it was really important for me to be able to have those questions and feel safe enough to ask, ask really difficult questions and hear good responses. Yeah. But it was around that time, 14 or 15, where I was at, at one of these camps where he brought us and the speaker and honestly, I, I couldn't tell you what he was talking about. I was not paying attention even a little bit because I was sitting next to a girl that I was definitely trying to get the phone number from because of that whole camp girlfriend thing. And I was sure, definitely yeah. focused on that 100%. But then all of a sudden I heard a thing and I paid attention for a moment. So I was no longer distracted or focusing on the, the cute girl sitting next to me. And I, I didn't make any sense. He was just talking about something random. But then and I can still remember it clear as day today, he, he said something to the effect of, some of you will be up here one day. Mm. Some of you will one day start to take over, take on the reins, become the, the pastors of tomorrow. Some of you right now might be feeling a call on your life to ministry, and you need to take that very seriously. You're not too young to start really wondering what it means to start setting the course of your life in a certain direction. And so basically from, from that point on, I was like, oh no, I think that's me. <laughs> oh no. And, and as a immature 14 or 15 year old, I didn't really say anything to anybody for a little while, but I eventually, and this is a tongue in cheek, I, I made the mistake. It's not really a mistake. I'm grateful that I did this. I, I told my youth pastor 
I said, hey, man, the guy said a thing, and this is immediately how I felt, and I can't shake it. I can't mm -hmm. ignore it. And so he said, oh, guess what's going to happen now? I don't know what. So then he had me teach a lesson like once a year or once every six months to the youth group. And he made sure that the next time around, the closest uh, Nazarene University to me was Point Loma. And we would have the preview days thing where you could go and check out the campus. Um, so he said, hey, you know, most of the time to be a pastor in the Nazarene church, you have to go and get an education. So let's check it out. I said, uh, what? And so he would, on his own dime, drive me about, I think it was 450 or 500 miles from, mm. from Arizona to San Diego, California, so that I could check out the campus and understand the possibilities of pursuing this call. And this was all so foreign to me because I already had figured I'm going to be a contractor one day. I'm just going to work for the family biz. I'm going to take it over. I'm going to swing hammers. And I was already doing that after school. I was always already doing construction when I wasn't in a sport or something, mm. but but he really kind of challenged me to take seriously what I had experienced and what I had felt. And I fought against it. I fought against it until basically the decision point, I applied to Point Loma and I, I really didn't want to go um, for the reason of becoming a pastor. I was super down to go to a campus where there was a beach. Um, and I was super down to go and hang out in Southern California and get out of my small little neck of the woods. Oh, sure. But I had some serious issues with this idea of um, I'm the son, and it's, it's ironic, but it's, I'm the son of a carpenter. I'm just going to do carpentry for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but that's not what happened. Um, and long, long story short with that, I had a number of other financial and uh, uh, familial, I guess, issues where, you know, just disagreements of what I should do with my future would, bring, would be brought up with my family. And we were at odds oftentimes. But then also just, you know, we couldn't pay for private Christian university. Yeah. So there was a number of things that just kind of fell through that made it possible for me to go that at that point in my life, it was just one of those, okay, this is not happening, God, um, unless it's really something you think needs to happen. If this mm. basically was my 18 year old version or version of saying, if this is legit, you're going to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and it happened and I graduated and uh, somehow the bills were paid through that. I mean, I still carry financial debt to this day, um, but I passed all of my classes. I did a bunch of internships. And then the real cherry on top was that after graduation, um, I was already married. Um, I got job offers. And that was what was probably the biggest shock to me is this is real. Mm -hmm. I've been kind of talking about the theory of being a pastor, but mm -hmm. suddenly this is actually someone else affirming that maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor. So that was that was a real eye-opening. Okay, I guess I'm going to start having a little more faith in the process, God. <laughs> well, tell me about that leap. Where did where did you go from there? So right out of college, um, we left Southern California. We actually, my wife, Caitlin, and I were married right before our senior year. Mm -hmm. And we were really struggling with whether or not we should do that. Uh, it ended up being a lot more frugal to get married before our senior year because we could live off campus and save a lot of money um, yeah. just getting in a tiny apartment, which even though in San Diego, I mean, it's so expensive to, to have an apartment in San Diego. But she also had NCLEX that she had to take. She was She's a registered nurse. And so after graduation, you have to take this massive test that you literally have to study for about a month for. Mm. And so we didn't want to add the stress of planning a wedding and having the wedding come uh, coming affect her, her focus and be able to, you know, we thought these two huge momentous occasions in our lives, maybe we should give them as much space from each other as possible. That makes sense. So right out of college, she, we, we hung out in San Diego until she took the test and she passed it. She basically got a perfect score on it, but there was probably about a week where she was convinced she failed at life and she was crying a lot. And mm. I was just kind of half, you know, I would pat her on the back, but then also kind of laugh a little bit because I knew she was fine, but she just couldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't, she just couldn't even. Sure. So after we, we got all official, she was a, an official RN, she could work. And I had some job offers to seriously consider. Then we went to central California and weirdly enough, we we became adults and started adulting in the middle of the recession. Mm. So we graduated college in 2009. And at that time, my wife was looking at trying to get jobs 
where one of my job offers were, which was San Diego. And there was some crazy figure where there was maybe 20 positions at this one hospital that just a couple of years ago was just hiring every Point Loma nurse that they would throw their way. Um, but at this, at this point, right after we graduated, um, if I remember right, there was about 20 positions that 600 nurses were applying for. Wow. So that was kind of chaotic. Um, but we went to Central California, and even there, she, she couldn't find a job right away. She ended up having to sign up for a nurse residency so that she could get a job because basically the, the common phrase was, you don't have enough experience. We're only hiring nurses with experience. And mm -hmm. it was just so frustrating because how is she supposed to get experience so that she can get hired once she has experience? Yeah. It, was, it was infuriating. But I got a job and um, part of my pay was a place to live and I didn't make a whole lot of money, but we made it work. And I was the middle school pastor at a church in Central California, um, Olive Knowles Church of the Nazarene. Mm -hmm. And I was there for about two and a half years, um, ended up becoming the worship leader for one of the services as well. Um, I was the interim youth pastor. So the way we had it set up, we had a, a high school youth pastor and a middle school youth pastor, and we would kind of team up to do youth stuff together. Mm -hmm. We had such a large youth group that we had to split it up based on those age brackets. And what it ended up turning into was there's all this leadership changing and there was kind of what seemed to be a changing of the, the guard at this church. And there was some unsavory things happening as well that were just unfortunate, you know, byproducts of ministry. Um, but we saw that as time for us to maybe start looking for where to go next. And I was, uh, I left that church and I was an interim pastor still in central California because like I had shared just, just a couple moments ago, my wife had to sign this contract. She basically was a nurse resident. They had to basically say, if we're going to give you this job, we're going to get out of you what we put into you. So they would mm -hmm. put them through a nurse residency, but then they had to work for two years and they had to have this contracted time where they couldn't go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So even though I felt very strongly that I, I needed to move on and leave that church, we couldn't leave that city. So there was fortunately two other churches, two, two other Nazarene churches in the area. And so one of them approached me to just do an interim. Uh, and I did an interim young adult college and worship uh, thing there. And while, while she worked out the rest of her contract, they knew that we were looking for somewhere to go. Eventually we got to Eastern Washington and then life got really crazy because we were there just a little over a year, had our first kid right before we moved. And then my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer and we thought she was literally going to die in about a month or two. Oof. And so it was just crazy thing after crazy thing. Um, I talked to the church in Eastern Washington and I told them that I, I was not sure I could uh, just make it work with the little amount of vacation I had that I needed to maybe be with my mom for what could have been the last couple of months of her life that I wanted my grand or her grandson, my son to be around her. So we moved back to Arizona where all this nonsense started with ministry in the first place. Mm. And we just lived the, the hardcore bivocational life. And so I went back to being the carpenter's son and I did full on construction and I swung a hammer and my wife actually didn't find a job right away. Um, but we were just there. And fortunately the story had a happy ending. My wife, um, my wife did find a job. My mom ended up not necessarily being told that she was cancer free, but that they did not find any cancer in her body, but they had to wait five years to give her a clean bill of health. Wow. Um, but she, she went through all the chemo. She went through radiation. And in one of her darkest hours, we were sitting there talking with her and she didn't know this at the time, but she, she was having a real hard time. And, you know, she felt like she was dying and she, we could just tell that she was feeling like there's only so much left and she almost mentally was giving up. And so we kind of dropped a bombshell on her and we said, well, you're not allowed to die, mom. And she said, well, why? I said, well, we're pregnant again. And this time it's a girl. So you have to stick around. <laughs> and so she, she sort of in some small way credits uh, part of her determination to, to see her granddaughter as part of how she was able to get through chemotherapy mm. um, and radiation. So it was a really meaningful, special time for us, but it also yeah. was this really interesting time where I kind of was wrestling with my philosophy, my personal philosophy of ministry and what it means to be a, a pastor because mm. I was spending less and less time in the church, 
but I didn't necessarily feel like I was not being a pastor. Mm. So unpack that for me. Tell me more about that. At the time I was doing construction and there was a church down the road that was very interested in having me at least on paper pastor there. Um, I had just gotten ordained and I basically told my DS before we left Eastern Washington, I'm going to leave. And I don't know that I'm going to a full-time ministry job. I just want you to know because you're about to ordain me. And I know that that could cause concerns for you. Mm. Um, and his response was, well, is there at least something that you know you could potentially be you know, peripherally involved in? Can you, is there some connection there? I said, I'm, I know all the churches in the area. I will absolutely work on at least being partially involved in a ministry in yeah. some capacity. And so I talked to my home church, the church I grew up in, and they said, oh, we could find something for you to do. Don't worry about it. Hmm. So that was kind of a relief. I didn't want to, you know, surrender credentials, but I basically told the church, I said, I, I'm not going anywhere to be a pastor. I'm probably taking a break from being a pastor. And I know that's the exact opposite that you want a brand new ordinand to do. But what ended up happening was this other church in a neighboring city heard that I was in town and they actually had a lot of help they needed. And so mm -hmm. I ended up being very, very bivocational. Um, and I say that because what, what I mean is I wasn't at church a lot, but I, I took over the worship. I took over the youth and young adult and I did all the extra, you know, stereotypical millennial techie stuff. Wow. So I helped with the website. I helped figure out some PA stuff, some just techie stuff. And, and I was essentially the youth and worship and young adult pastor, even though they knew full well, I was only going to be there so much. Yeah. But they were, they basically said, yeah, we can't pay you. So that's cool. <laughs> so I said, all right, I guess it works out for all of us. Yeah. Um, but I saw it as an interesting opportunity because I've always had some struggles with, um, my, my initial experience with ministry, there was definitely the expectation and I was full time. So I, I guess I can understand some of this, but I still had some hangups with it. I was expected to be in the office like nine to five, five days a week. Oh. Um, um, and so that was this expectation that I never could wrap my head around, especially since my natural response was there has never once been a middle school kid. And that was, that was my specialized area of ministry that has come to the church during the office day to see me that right. just it doesn't make any sense yeah and realistically I can make my work take a lot longer than it really does but I don't need 40 hours of office time to prep for for all the you know lessons and, and events and things that we do for youth ministry sure I would much rather spend time with the youth go to their schools go hang out of their football games and I would rather see that as my actual ministry time and my ministry mm. hours. Yeah. And so while I was in Eastern Washington, I started to kind of um, fight against the, in the office all day, every day. And they actually allowed me to do some bivocational work. So in Eastern Washington, I was able to become a, a track coach, a junior high football coach, and I was also a bus driver. And so in all three instances, I was engaging with teenagers. Yeah. So that was just this natural outpouring of being able to be where they were at and still see that as ministry time. But then for me, the double benefit was those were all paid positions as well. Sure. And the church that I was working at wasn't able to pay necessarily a livable salary. So that really helped me out as well. Yeah. So by the time I got to Arizona, when I wasn't necessarily looking for a pastoring gig, I was kind of completely okay with what I called pastoring on my own terms and not having the, what felt like an overbearing expectation of being in an office nine to five, Monday through Friday or whatever the time was to be, be in the office. Yeah. Um, and just to focus on people and just to be around people. And what was funny is my dad, it wasn't like, oh yeah, my son, the, the carpenter's son is like, no, this is my son. He's a pastor. He's just working with me right now. That's mm -hmm. how I was introduced to everybody on every job site ever. So literally on a regular basis, there were going to be hour to two hour long theological discussions at lunch in a house that's half built. Yeah. Um, and then I had other jobs that I did as well. I was an EMT. I went to fire Academy. I was fire certified to um, do structural firefighting. Cause I kind of thought maybe I'm just going to live in Arizona cause I don't know what's going on with my mom. 
and I'm just going to lean into this bivocational lifestyle. I'm going to do something else that I feel like is really significant and service oriented, which is why I became an EMT firefighter. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I will go to church and, and be a part of a ministry of the church. But I saw the two as being kind of synergetic. They worked together and they helped me see my role as more than just an office pastor, I guess. And I don't want to be little, I don't want to be little that because I don't think there's anything wrong with spending time, especially if you're at a bigger church and you have a team and you're able to spend more time focusing on, you know, the teaching or the preaching or that sort of a thing. But for me, especially when it was more geared towards engaging young people and teenagers, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense because by and large, the struggle was just getting them to church. Mm. And it made a lot more sense to just go wherever they were at. Yeah, I totally get that. So that became sort of the theme for my ministry life. And it hasn't changed a whole lot because I'm still very bivocational. Um, I, ha I don't continue doing the same thing everywhere I live. I, I seem to have this process and I'm, I've been reflecting on it lately where I sort of exegete <laughs> culture, I guess I would say, where I really take inventory and see where could I best spend time outside church, but still mm -hmm. kind of in a pastoral ministerial um, way because what I was doing in Arizona wouldn't necessarily work in Western Washington where I'm at now. Sure. Um, the last job that I ended up doing in, in Arizona because I actually sort of caught a person and destroyed my back. So I wasn't able to be a firefighter anymore until I dealt with the herniations in my lower back and Oof. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still broken a little bit. So that wasn't necessarily good for my health to continue. But the last thing I did in Arizona was maybe my favorite bivocational gig. Um, I taught sex ed in the public high schools. So I had about a thousand students that in a school year I would teach sex ed to. And I know that sounds horrifying to some people, but that was some of the most fun and actually meaningful and fulfilling stuff I got to do because I just could be real with them. Yeah, that's awesome. I could just really, I said, hey, this is all scientific based. This is all fact based. This is all stuff you need to know about. Cause you're at an age where you're going to start doing stuff. And I'll be honest, sometimes you're not smart enough to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. So I'm going to help you be equipped to make better decisions. Yeah. And so it was a really interesting time where I was just, I, all I did was spend time with teenagers for, mm. you know, like a year of my life. And most of the teenagers I spent time with would never have, you know, quote unquote, darkened the doors of a church. Yeah. So that was significant for me because I saw it as absolutely, you know, what I would say gospel, but maybe um, not really disguised, but not overtly gospel um, message being shared. Because the the curriculum and who I worked for I actually worked for Catholic Charities. And the curriculum was abstinent based, but it wasn't necessarily this overtly shoving abstinence down anyone's throat sort of a thing, but more of a scientific, the only guarantee to not get some of this, to not get some of that is to not do this. Yeah. And uh, it was just, you know, being real with teenagers and being willing to talk their language and to um, speak in a way that they actually would listen. So it was really significant for me to be able to, to value that time outside of the four walls of a church building. Yeah. That, that actually sounds awesome. I might come back to that. Um, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> tell enough. me how you got from there to where you are now. Where does that last step come in? My mom, again, um, I love my mom. She's awesome. She, uh, I'm, I'm one of four boys. I'm the oldest. And, um, you know, my mom's a pretty tough cookie. And after surgeries, after chemotherapy, after radiation, she actually was starting to get clean scan after clean scan. Mm. And I had just recently destroyed my back. I was struggling to find another well-paying job. I found the job teaching sex ed, but then another issue arose with housing where we were just, you know, we were really struggling to make ends meet financially where we were at in Arizona, especially since I was just kind of juggling part-time jobs. I just had a couple part-time jobs and my wife had a part-time job because at this point we had two children. Mm. So we're also juggling the cost of childcare and really literally there were days where I was doing the math. I'll have to pay this much childcare to make this much. So I'm just going to stay home because I don't make enough to justify paying someone else to raise my kids. And you know what? I kind of like my kids. I'd rather raise them myself. Yeah. So at some point, 
my mom, who this is a very selfless, loving act, said, you need to go away. <laughs> and I said, what? That's rude, mom. What are you talking about? She said, you need to go and, and see what's out there. You need mm. to get back into full-time ministry and be able to take care of your family better and do what God has called you to do. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's heavy, mom. And so I did. I, I decided to look and see what was out there. And there was a lot of options. I actually talked to a lot of, I mean, even different I talked to some people in the Midwest. I talked to some people on the East Coast. I talked to some California connections. And, and ultimately, I talked to the Pacific Northwest. And the reason I pursued the Pacific Northwest is because I was pursued most intensely. Um, I just sent my resume to a bunch of different places. And different districts will kind of ask you, if you would even be open to this sort of a role, you should fill out this questionnaire. And so the Pacific Northwest, from what I remember at the time, I wasn't looking to be a lead pastor wasn't ready, wasn't ready for that. Every other job was an associate pastor. So either as a worship pastor, a youth pastor, a college pastor, an associate, just, you know, not, not the lead, not the senior pastor. Um, And so I was sort of generically applying, but they, from what I remember, and it's probably me misreading it. And so we could say that it was divine intervention or something, but I thought I just had to fill out the questionnaire for lead pastors just to be safe. Mm. And so I filled out literally a 40 page questionnaire. That's what it Oof. ended up being at the end of it. And it's just like the story of my life and the things that I would do about this and what I think about that. And I didn't pull any punches. I was very honest. There are things that I just don't like about the church. There are things that I've experienced in the past that made me seriously question continuing to be a pastor. There are things that I was still struggling with, with being bivocational and how, you know, I, I feel like maybe we could be creative and how we just, expect pastors to do ministry and how we expect mm-hmm. the church to, to be the church. Yeah. Um, so I followed this crazy questionnaire and I submitted it and I think I did that on a Saturday and then the following Monday, and this was the Monday before Thanksgiving, um, in 2015, I want to say the DS called me on that Monday and he said, Hey man, I'm, I was just reading over your resume and your questionnaire. And I was just curious if you would permit me to, send your resume to this church. And he proceeded to tell me about the church. And I said, that sounds good. Is the position for like youth or worship? Said, no, lead pastor. Said, uh, pump the brakes, homie. What are you talking about? (laughs) I didn't call him homie, but, um, I, I immediately said, do you know how old I am? Said, yeah. But then he paused for a moment and said, but remind me, how old are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am 28 years old, sir. And said, okay, I don't think that'll bother them. Said, okay. You know, I've never done the whole lead pastor thing before. He said, yep, again, I think they'll be okay with that. I said, and so I just laughed. I said, sure, give him my resume. That's, mm-hmm. that's funny. And in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, yeah, no one would take my resume. No one's going to say, oh, this guy's never done this before. Because that's kind of what I was raised up in. That's kind of what I see the story of the associate being is you do your time as an associate pastor. And at one point, someday someone says, you know what? You've done the associate thing long enough maybe we would allow you to be a lead pastor. Yeah. And there's also plenty, and some of my closest friends, this is where they're at. They never want to be lead pastors. Mm. They only want to hang out with teenagers. They only want to be in children's ministry. They only want to do college age ministry. And that's, that's great too. I think more power to them. But basically that's not what happened. I I thought surely they would say, that's a good one. DS guy. What do you, what are you thinking we're smoking? I know it's Washington and everything, but <laughs> not, this is not going to work out. But two days later, so again, the week of Thanksgiving, the following Wednesday, they called me back and they said, we need to set up a Skype interview. And so basically that wasn't going to happen that week because it was Thanksgiving. And the following week, we set that all up. And I was pretty much tripping out. And mm. me and my wife, had kind of been on the same page as far as, okay, I guess we need to be open to this process. My wife mm-hmm. absolutely was saying, I'm not ready to be the wife of a senior pastor. And I said, I'm not ready to be a senior pastor. <laughs> so the, we're on the same page. But <laughs> he said that we need to do an interview. Are we at least okay with the interview? She's like, okay, I guess so. That terrifies me. I said, it terrifies me too. What mm-hmm. do you, uh, and, but we did the interview. We did a Skype interview and Uh, One of the things that me and my wife had talked about was we have to ask them what in the world is wrong with their church? Why are they even entertaining you? And it wasn't this insulting sort of a thing for me. It was just really like church culture would say that there's something wrong. Mm. Be willing to hire this untested 
young, inexperienced pastor. Mm. And so I asked that question. I mean, we had all the normal questions. Someone asked me, how do you preach entire sanctification? And I said, I never use those words. <laughs> and, and they said, well, what, well, how do you preach holiness? Like, again, I don't use the word holy too much. Like, well, how do you do it? And I'm just trying to be like Jesus, Christ-likeness, however you want to call it. But I try to steer clear from, you know, the really Christianese, Nazarene language, because I kind of feel like we make it a little too exclusive when we talk in this you have to know our language to understand what we're talking about sort of a way. Mm. But uh, I, it came time for me to, I said, Hey guys, you're interviewing me. That's great. It's my turn to ask some questions. And I said, yeah. Oh, cool. That's great. And I said, what's wrong with your church? <laughs> and I just, I, I said it as blunt as I could because in some small way, it was almost like I want them to, to react. Mm. I need to not, this, this is not really supposed to happen. Like I need an out or something. Um, but I asked, I just said, what's wrong with your church? Why are you even entertaining hiring a young pastor? Mm. You you can't be a big successful church would not hire me. That's just a fact. And they yeah. said, well, we're kind of in a spot. So, okay, feel free to continue. And they basically had me as an option and another pastor as an option. And the way that they expressed it was that this church was was maybe unsure of its future. I'll say it gently. Very unsure that even a year from there, then they would be still in existence, that the doors wouldn't have to be shut. Yeah. So they said, on one hand, we could get this pastor that would be willing to maybe come out of retirement or whatever. But in some ways, that would almost be us saying, we just need a hospice chaplain to help us die. Mm. On the other hand, we could maybe take the Hail Mary play that's probably, you know, statistically not supposed to work, but just hedge our bets that maybe you can learn on the job and God will be in it and something mm. cool will happen. And mm. so my follow-up question was, okay, I appreciate your honesty. What happens when I mess up stuff? Yeah. And, and you know, I unpacked that a little bit. I said, I don't, I've never done this. I don't know how to do that. Like, I've never had to lead a board meeting. I've never had to do a church budget what are we going to do when we cross those bridges? And I just don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And the response was, well, God has grace for us. So I guess we should have grace for you. Right. I said, yep. And then I also said, but practically speaking, are you going to help? And they said, Oh, absolutely. As much as we can help and train and do this stuff. And then the real cherry on top, because at this point I'm starting to realize, uh Oh, all the things that I've tried to put in the way of this from happening, all my little mental roadblocks, all of my, surely this won't happen. They would never hire me. That's silly, Josiah. Ask rude questions so they'd be offended. At some point in my head, it clicked, uh, this might happen, Josiah. And yeah. I looked at my wife and she was also giving me that, not speaking, but speaking through her eyes thing, um, saying, uh-oh, this might be a thing that they actually want to do. Um, mm. And then cherry on top was that my DS is only about 25 minutes from the church that he was asking me to come and pastor at. They said, the added benefit is that I will personally mentor you through this process, that I will be available to you when you call. I will answer. We will meet as often as you need to meet. We will have yeah. lunch. And I'm just going to invest in you and invest in your success and the success of this church. And so basically the interview ended with a, okay, so you decide we're going to vote on this and we're going to suggest it to the congregation. And there's the whole process where they were deciding on whether or not this was going to be the continued person that they're going to dialogue with and all that. Mm. And we were kind of deciding whether or not we were willing to continue with it. Um, but at that point we said, okay, I guess we're going to just let it roll. And this will be just the affirmation that we apparently desperately need because we were still in disbelief that they were even just talking to us. Yeah. Um, but in the end they brought us up, we candidated and that, that whole process kind of irks me. I don't love that process um, because basically it's a preach the best sermon you've ever preached so that we can judge you on whether or not you're a good pastor. Mm. Okay, cool. And then there was the town hall meeting. And then after that, the congregation voted. And the last final thing, because I really was just not necessarily, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would say I wasn't at peace with this, but I was super, um, I, I wouldn't say distraught either. I was just seriously questioning everything. Like, this is not real. This can't yeah. be happening. I don't really believe that this church would want me to take over because I'm, I'm the guy that doesn't like all this stuff and I'd want to rip it to shreds and so on and so forth. And so the final, I guess, affirmation that I sort of was talking to God about was, all right, God, 
I know that the manual says that they have to have this much of a majority to vote. The congregation has to be in this much of a uniform, uh, unanimous uh, majority. And I think it's uh, 70% or two thirds or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's probably not going to cut it for me. I'm probably not going to say yes to that. And I didn't necessarily, I remember this prayer pretty distinctly. I'm like, I'm not going to say it needs to be unanimous God, but that would definitely hit it home to me that maybe just maybe you actually want me to be the lead pastor of this church. And that this is really where you've called us to go. Mm -hmm. And then I got the call and it was unanimous. And the the DS added the cherry on top. He said, I don't think this has happened as DS that a church has unanimously voted on a church. Like, well, that's what I get for testing God apparently. (laughs) And so basically from November of 2015, um, the end of November. So December, January, we were up there February one. Wow. So two months of interviewing, candidating, and then they paid for us to move and we left Arizona and my mom and dad cried a lot and we cried a lot but they they knew this was what we're supposed to do so we loaded up the the Jones wagon and brought all of our things to the Pacific Northwest which by the way just the climate's slightly different than Arizona let me tell you Uh, yeah I'm sure that's true (laughs) yeah Um, it 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 snows or it rains here more than it doesn't so (laughs) yeah uh yes been there done that it's very fun um tell me okay so so you've been there a few years now kind of tell me about um this this project you've been working on the book that you wrote how did it all get started well i never fully got over the shock that i was going to be the lead pastor of a church and so basically all of january because we went up the first sunday of january and then they voted um in january and so at the end of january i basically knew that if they voted we were going up there and it was forecasted to be a probably a yes vote and so all of january i was just completely shocked i was staggered i was just kind of in my own head about it because and you i guess you have to be a part of church culture to really appreciate it but there's not too many 28 year old lead pastors sure that's just I didn't know any actually at the time. I did not know another pastor that was younger than me. The only lead pastors I knew were at least 10, 15, sometimes 20 years older than me. And when I got to this uh, district, they were making strides. And so, but when I first got here, I was the youngest pastor on the district. And this is my estimation. I don't have like the journal and all the stuff to prove this, but I was the youngest pastor on the district by about 10 to 15 years. Um, and so it just dawned on me through all these life experiences that there's something to that. Obviously I was aware of it. I knew that most of the churches I had been in were really struggling with like college ministry, young adult ministry. Um, but it really started hitting home that first year when I would have to honestly convince people that came to my church for the first time that I actually was the lead pastor. Mm. So on a regular basis, sometimes weekly, I would have to say, no, I really am the pastor here. And Mm. sometimes it wasn't until someone much older than myself who went to my church came over and said, no, he's really our lead pastor. We hired him that Mm. it would sink in for people because I didn't look the part. I wasn't old enough. I, I would, I literally had people say, well, are you qualified to do this? Well, I'm doing it. I don't know if the question of qualification is really uh, a thing we need to worry about anymore. Maybe, maybe not, but no, I, I, I would joke. And most of the time they didn't think the jokes were funny because they were actually very concerned that <laughs> I was the lead pastor. And so I said, well, I was, I was religiously trained. I went to school. I have a degree in Christian ministries. I've been ordained because I met all these requirements. I don't know if mm. that's really what you're getting at. I think what you're really saying is, am I some crazy young person who's going to ruin your church? Mm. And so some people actually left because of me being here or they would come for one Sunday and say, yep, this is not for me. Mm. See you later. Because, and it's great. Like Scott Daniels wrote a great book, the first hundred days. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest things was don't change anything. And I tried to do that, but it's laughable because when you follow somebody that is old enough to be your dad, just your presence alone changes everything. Sure. Just being up front and, 
preaching the way that I just organically am going to preach is just so different than the way someone over 60 is going to preach. And that's not a slight to the person over 60 or necessarily to the young person either. It's just, you can't help but, but change it with your presence. Just being there changes everything. And so that to me kind of became laughable. I guess I could understand if you're following another pastor who's maybe, you know, within five, 10 years of you, you really could kind of maintain sort of the, this is the day to day. It's not a lot's changing, but yeah. just, just being at this church, having children, needing a nursery, like these mm. were things that immediately changed. Oh man. Yeah. Cause we didn't have a nursery. We had like volunteers and really the nursery was like the storage room cause they didn't have babies, but we brought two and we needed a nursery. Yeah, but throughout the whole year, I basically just had all these things where I was learning on the fly. I was, um, you know, having successes and failures, and I was just basically the common theme was I was learning that I didn't know that I didn't know what I was sure. doing. Yeah. And so at the end of it, I I really, at, when I approached my one year mark, I was really talking with my wife a lot about how much I felt like I had grown and learned, and how I just wanted to document my life for my own growth and to reflect on and to see and, you know, kind of keep track of mm. progress and, you know, never take for granted where I have come from and so on and so forth. So I did that and I just sort of made a memoir and it was sort of out of the desire to, to encapsulate that frame of mind that I had for that first year of ministry. Cause I knew, I guess part of me was really nervous that I knew I was never going to have that exact same perspective again. And I felt mm. like it was just so pure it was so honest. It was so naive. And that was both good and bad, but it was just, it was what it was. And I wanted to never forget what it was like to step into that role and to kind of encapsulate it for my own sake. I never had any plans for anyone else to care about it. Yeah. I started writing down what had happened in my first year in sort of a memoir sort of a way. And I ended up talking to my wife more and more about it. And she said, I think we're probably going to need you to print this so your parents can read it so my parents can read it and we just thought they would really like to know because most of our family thought it was crazy that I was hired as a lead pastor and that might sure. be more of a, a slight on me personally and my character and just <laughs> the things I did as a youth pastor I was a little bit of a thrill seeker risk taker and broke myself a lot of times so the, the ongoing joke was did you burn the church down yet and the answer was always no I didn't thanks for asking Sure. But, but just for the sake of sharing our story with others, my, my wife said, you should consider giving this to your family. And, or I said it to her, how, whoever said it to whoever the idea was born. So I just started looking into what it would take to just actually print it and bind it. And just, you know, I thought I would spend a hundred bucks and have like five copies of this memoir and send it to my family for like, you know, a unique Christmas gift or something like that. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening was not what I anticipated. I, did not I, I pulled a I pulled a stereotypical thing where I didn't read all the fine print and I gave my phone number to this website to download the form. And I knew that the it wasn't a questionable website, but I just didn't really read why they were asking for my phone number. And it mm. happened to be Zondervan's self publishing branch called Westbow Press. <laughs> and all I was trying to do was download this PDF. And it's like mm -hmm. the hook line sinker thing, right? They want your sure. information before they'll give you a PDF. Yeah, totally. And so all I was looking for was that price. They were like, we can do this. I'm like, okay, how much does it cost? We can do this. Okay, I just want to know how much it costs. <laughs> so I gave them the information and I broke down like, okay, you have my information. I was like, block your call. And I downloaded the PDF. I'm like, this is not helpful. This is not what I wanted. This is so bogus. But the next day I got a call and it's the Westwell Press. I'm like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm annoyed with them. So I'm going to tell them that I'm annoyed with them, that they didn't actually give me the price. And maybe someone will answer my question. <laughs> After that conversation, which lasted about two or three hours, I, I was left with an impression of this being a book, I guess, for the first time. Mm. Um, basically, I told him what it was about because the first thing this guy said, and he's kind of a salesman, so he's trying to sell me, was, sure. hey, what is your book called? I'm like, it's not a book. I'm like, okay, but if you were going to call it something, what would you call it? I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, like the life of a millennial pastor or something. I don't know. Like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me about it. And so I just kind of told him, like, uh, it's just my story. He's like, okay, why do you why do you care to tell your story? I'm like, I don't. This is just for my mom and dad. Like, who are you? I don't care about any of this stuff. But 
he asked the right questions and I started thinking a little more about, okay, I guess this could be a book. And he started, and he was really good. Like he was a good salesman. He started saying things like, you know, there's not any other books out there like this. Like, okay, man, I got it. You're hard selling me. I get it. And I left the conversation with actually kind of pondering, okay, maybe I, maybe this is a thing. I don't know. Mm. He was trying to sell me some package. And basically if you don't know what assistant self-publishing entails, you're just paying somebody to print your book in a way that looks like a real book. Yeah. And that's it. That's the long and the short of it. They don't give you an editor. They don't give you a whole lot of support. You can get um, help with your cover and that sort of a thing, which I didn't want because I had a buddy that was going to make me the most killer book cover ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was a long time down. I I was for about six to eight months. I was super resistant to this idea of making it a book. Mm. And they kept calling me, kept calling me. Eventually I got a different person. And I don't know if they knew that she was like the closer, but she was really nice. And She's like, this is so awesome. I can't wait to read your book. I'm like, I didn't agree to nothing, lady. I don't know what you're talking about in my book. Like, it's a done deal. Um, But the the real kind of the the change from when it suddenly became a book was when I was confronted with with what she recommended. Okay, I get it. You're a pastor. You don't have any money to pay for this. I and she went to her manager. She got the cheapest package they had ever offered anybody because they literally were trying to sell me for about eight months. I'm like, I'm not mm. worth this, guys. I'm not gonna spend any money here. She said, yep. What if you did this? What if you really felt it out to see if people cared about the story and thought this was worth investing in? I said, Well, what are you what are you asking me to do? And so she asked me to do a GoFundMe. Hmm. I said, I don't wanna ask for money for this. This is silly. She said, Yeah, but that would tell you if this is something you should pursue, right? And I said, I suppose. And so she hard sold me on that for about a month. And so in, I don't know, maybe it was September. So I've been at this church a year and a half, a year and eight or nine months and September, October of the second year I've been here. And so I decide, okay, I'm going to put it on a GoFundMe page and I'll share it on Facebook one time. And I'll just say, Hey guys, this is a thing. I might have done a thing, but probably not because this is what all this entails. I gave like a real brief, this is what assisted self-publishing is. This is how much it costs. This is what I would be assistedly self-publishing. <laughs> and I just kind of put it out to Facebook and Twitter and said, hey, no pressure. This is probably just a, you know, silly, ignore it. If it's another commercial, another just yeah. thing you don't need to care about. But 12, 12 hours later, it funded. And I was kind of tripping out about that. It wasn't a whole lot, um, but it actually doubly funded um, in wow. about a week. And because people said, hey, you already funded. What if we gave you more? So, well, then if you give me more, then I can get an ebook version. Because like I was at the bare bones budget Walmart version of publishing where it was basically I could have a paperback book and you could you could buy it from Amazon. And that was about it. And so they kept funding it and funding it. And so I got ebook uh, availability. I got hardcover availability. I got one of the supposedly the biggest perks, but I, I guess I am not a good marketer and I haven't tried to market it enough. Um, I was able to get this thing called bookstore advantage where basically Barnes and Noble could carry it. And if it didn't sell, they could send it back at no cost. And so that, those are like really big perks. Nice. Um, but eventually it became real and I was really, again, shocked mm. at, at this. But what I started to understand was that this was maybe it was, it was more than just Josiah's story. It was the story of a church that decided to take a risk, um, a risk that they felt God had called them to take to imagine a future for the church that was maybe a little bit different than the past. Hmm. They decided that they were going to, and this is their own words, that you know, they, they felt that like they were in a rut. They were stuck and they weren't going to try the same thing over again and expect different results. So they wanted to to branch out and try something new. So this wasn't necessarily even Josiah's story being shared. It was the story of the church. It was the story of Jesus's relationship with the church. It was a story of what it means to, to take steps of faith and that God can use very unlikely people who are unequipped, unprepared, incapable of doing a task, but somehow the task is able to get done because God. And so that's, that's basically what I feel like the story of my first year was, was I was the unlikely person. I was not supposed to be the person to do this stuff. I had I, the joke now with my friends is I still haven't gone to seminary. So I have to ask what big words are. I have to still ask Google what this word, you know, it's just mm-hmm. the unlikely person to be in the position I was in, but it was all because this was what God wanted. And I and my family and this church decided to say yes and do something that required a lot of faith. 
Um, but mm. you know, it was just faith that God would, would provide, would guide the way and would, would pave the way forward. So now it's turned into so much more. Um, now it's just kind of a crazy thing. Uh, I'm, I'm preparing right now for a workshop that I'm leading at M19. Um, and I think most of your, most of your podcast listeners are aware of the events that the NASBO has put on. So I don't know if I really need to say a whole lot about M19. Sure. Um, but I am leading a workshop called Millennials in the Church. And it's just a simple conversation about, hey, this is what's going on with the church. Um, and inter intertwining my story of, hey, I'm kind of this, <laughs> sometimes my friends and I joke about we're unicorns. There's not mm -hmm. too many of us that are yeah. leading churches as millennials. Sure. But, but there's a bigger thing happening as well. It's easy to find the research. Barna and Pew Research do all sorts of stuff. Um, the most conservative estimates are that 60% of millennials don't go to church. Mm. And the numbers are even more magnified because millennials are the largest population on the yeah. planet. So, and this is also, some of this is maybe debated. This is also the first time that the majority of a generation stopped going to church. Mm. Stop participating in the faith communities because boomers left the church in droves. Gen Xers left the church in droves and millennials have had the biggest mass exodus from church. Mm. And so the natural progression has been, okay, let's, let's ask ourselves what that's about. And that's kind of what my current work alongside of just pastoring has been. Um, it obviously impacts my day-to-day -day ministry. This church knows, um, knows what I'm about. And we have this really beautiful relationship where we actually have plenty of what I call seasoned saints. And we kind of have struck an accord where they get it. They, they understand that I'm trying to help them be able to understand me and my generation. And I, I try to say this a lot. Um, when the young energetic passion is coupled with the wise experienced um, mentorship, then something beautiful can happen in the church when we don't just mm -hmm. go to our own little corners based on age or race or gen or whatever, you know? And so how do we do that though? How do we have more even representation across the generations? So that's kind of where a lot of my time and energy is spent um, in a bivocational way when I'm not doing things specifically pertaining to, to writing sermons or doing pastoral care, counseling, stuff like that in my local context. So mm, that's awesome. So, so the book has kind of spawned a, a podcast. Yeah. So that's, that's another thing that has naturally come out of this, I guess. Um, one time a friend said, man, cause I, I was, I guess I was, airing grievances or confessing um, my publicist, my publisher slash public. I don't know what they're called because I don't pay them and they're just trying to get me to pay more money for this. It's just a self-publishing thing. Um, <laughs> wanted me to do marketing and I'm really bad at marketing because I'm not really wanting to schlep my books around. They said, you should do an author signing at, at your local Barnes and Noble. And I still haven't done that. And my book has been out almost a year and I just, mm. I don't think I'm ever going to do that because sure. I just, I don't want to do that. It's not yeah. really, Hey, I'm this cool author. I'm going to sign your book because my signature is significant or something. Mm. I'm just not about that. So yeah. I was blogging and I was posting just, this is what millennials think about the church. If you care and people cared. I mean, I had some people read my blog. Um, and I was also having other millennial pastors that I started to meet through this whole process, sharing their story. And it's, it kind of got some traction, but at some point I just was over writing um, blog posts and I just for one reason or another wasn't feeling inspired to do that yeah. it just kind of became burdensome because uh, you know I, I didn't like how impersonal it was I'd rather have conversations with people about it and I felt like mm -hmm. being a keyboard warrior that's that's what the perception was was just oh you're just yelling in text form and anyone can do that and that's great mm -hmm. so one of my buddies said hey man what if we did a podcast? And my response was, okay, that's just another hipster stereotypical millennial thing, right? We're podcasters. So let's do that. He's like, no, really consider it. And like you would be able to kind of accomplish the goal of having this dialogue 
which is directly connected with your work in the book, but also continue work of your ministry in your life, but also it'd be meaningful. And so what the podcast is about is just talking with other millennials that are in the church. So I guess that's the plan for the first season. Uh, we have some other plans for continuing seasons. If we continue, if people still listen, mm-hmm. um, but basically the gist of it is we talk about the things we love about the church. We talk about the things we can't stand about the church. And every week we have a guest who shares the things that they're most passionate about. And a lot of times, almost without exception, the thing they're passionate about is something that drives them nuts about current church culture that they're trying to uh, address. So instead Mm. of sit on the sideline and complain, they're actively involved and engaged in maybe being part of the solution instead of just pointing out problems. Mm. So it's been, it's been really awesome kind of therapeutic, but also um, really encouraging. I, I have, older people that listen and give me feedback and um i have younger people that listen and say i'm so happy someone said that i'm just super encouraged that there's still that going on in the church um but it's just fun we just enjoy it and it's a lot more real for me than than blogging and writing words on a on a screen Mm -hmm. we're just having real conversations with real people about real things and i guess there's a couple people that like to listen to that so well, if somebody wanted to get a hold of your book or find your podcast, um, where can they reach you? How can they they figure that out? <laughs> this is the stuff I'm not good at, Britt. Um, uh, so I have a website, themillennialpastor.com, mm-hmm. and there's a pair of L's and a pair of N's in the middle of that word that people often misspell. Sure. Um, themillennialpastor.com, that's the the hub for stuff, so... You can get all the connections for where to buy my book at. Um, People sometimes ask, where do I get the biggest commission? I'm not really concerned about that. Just wherever you buy books is normally where you can get it. Um, But all the information about the book and kind of these stories, those are the things that are probably more significant for me. Um, Those are all found at the website. That's where the podcast can be found. But the podcast is also everywhere podcasts are. So if you just, if you search on Amazon, if you search on Apple Podcasts, if you search on Google Podcasts, if you search anywhere um, that you buy books or listen to podcasts and you just type The Millennial Pastor, it'll show up. Um, right. The book or the podcast. And there might be another thing in the future that happens. And then it, that website will probably um, talk about that in the near future. But there's definitely kind of the next level conversation that I'm learning needs to be had. Um, there's a lot of interesting feedback I'm getting a lot of interesting conversations because some of the response I get is that this is nothing new, Mm. um, that, okay, yeah, millennials, I get it. You don't go to church and you don't like this, that, the other, I Mm. did that. I did that in the sixties, but I, (laughs) exactly. That's nothing new. Get over it. But, but there is something new to it. Um, the numbers don't necessarily lie. So I've, I've been spending a lot of time, you know, just doing research and talking to people and mm. um, just being a pastor and learning from life lessons. Um, so, so this is not just a, this is an ongoing thing, I, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. I really want to continue to work in this vein to maybe be sort of a bridge builder um, mm. between generations and, and try to help maybe mend some divides that we have happening in our church. Um, a lot of them aren't necessarily because of age, but they absolutely seem to follow generational lines. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of a concern, um, for me that causes me, that causes me sleepless nights on an occasion trying to grapple with what does that look like in my own local context? But what does that look like for the church at large, the church Catholic, the church worldwide? What does it look like for us to, to be able to do this thing that we do. And there's something unique about the church. I think when we do it right, it's one of the few places, maybe the only place where young and old intentionally hang out with one another and they don't have to, they're not biologically related. They don't work together. They don't have to do it, but it's one of the few places and this has happened in my church and we celebrate it. And it's so exciting where there can literally be an 80 year spread and people are gathering on purpose still and actually engaging with one another in authentic relationships. Mm. That's just not common in society, particularly in this country. 
but that's something that I think we should celebrate um, because we're better together than we are separated. That's beautiful. Um, okay, so let me ask you the, the last question I ask everybody. <laughs> okay. Um, is kind of about our little corner of the world, right? So what, what gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? Honestly, the, I, I guess the, the easy answer is that there are others like me out there that haven't given up yet. Mm. But that's, that's not an honest, complete answer. I think what really gives me hope is that we have amazing leadership that wants this to continue and mm -hmm. understands that there's issues that need addressing that is maybe willing to take some, some risks to, to be willing to entertain creative problem solving, to, to be willing to understand that to move forward, we might have to let things go that are in the past. So I, I'm really encouraged by, by the leadership of this church. And in particular, I have to get a, give a shout out um, to the CPL, the Center for Pastoral Leadership, Jess mm -hmm. Middendorf's um, Neck of the Woods. Yeah, There's a group of people that I have been privileged to be a part of. Dana Presh kind of heads this up, but it's called Ministers and Mentoring. And it's this pilot, the denomination, um, I, I feel like a lab rat, you know, like a guinea pig sort of, because this is the first time they've done something like this. Sure. Um, but it's super encouraging because the denomination is really addressing some, some issues of, you know, some of us not feeling prepared or equipped to take over. Um, there's this constant thing that goes through a lot of our minds because there's about 12 of us and we've all read some of the same books. One of the books is Canoeing the Mountains. And the opening statement in that book is you were trained for a church. You were trained to lead a church that doesn't exist anymore. Like, mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's super helpful. I'm Very really encouraging. Yeah. Yes. I'm really happy to know that. <laughs> and uh, my participation in this mentoring thing, it has basically been the reaction I got with my book. So I handed my book to my DS and one of my chapters, I think it's chapter 11. I kind of, don't say the nicest things about how unprepared I felt like I was. Mm. And some of that may or may not have been directed at the denomination and its education, academic institutions. And so the response I got was my DS saying, I heard that there's this thing and I'm putting your name in for consideration. And so his response was, okay, we need to address that. Let's do mm. something with that. Let's equip you for the job that you need to do and let's invest in your success. So the thing that maybe gives me the most hope is that there's still young people um, that are stepping up to the plate, but maybe even more so, there are so many amazing seasoned saints in this denomination who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to invest time and energy, who are willing to kind of pass on the torch uh, because they have the wisdom and experience to do so and want to just invest in us and see us succeed. So that really gives me hope on top of the just, you know, if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen, but that's the Sunday school answer. So, sure. <laughs> but in a, in a very human practical way, I would say just that amazing relationship that can happen when we are in sort of a discipleship relationship with one another and it surpasses generational lines. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Britt. It was super fun. I could probably talk about this stuff for far too long, so <laughs> you will need to cut me off. No, it's great. It's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate being on the show.